It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. Hello, babes. Welcome to episode 151 of Dunzo. It is me. Troy McEady, and, well, we made it. We are finally here, folks. We made it. We did it. We navigated the entirety of Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown's lives, for the most part. I mean, come on. And we're being spat out on the other end in the episode that I've been dreading since before we even started this whole fucking thing. Because I knew inevitably one day we would have to do this, because this is a podcast, after all, that covers wacky and insane celebrity relationships, and Whitney and Bobby is a huge point of reference for that, so you can't ignore it. And uh, even when I announced it to most of you, you were like, well, girl, duh, like, it's about fucking time, like, excited, but like, duh. And... I told you guys that I would likely be doing a separate episode for Bobby Christina and her relationship with Nick Gordon and her unexpected death. Obviously, there's so much to cover when it comes to her sort of transition from being, you know, the little girl that would stand behind her mom's legs on a red carpet and like bouncing on stage to my love is your love and her little like cupcake dresses and her petticoats. Is that what you call is that what you call little girls like fancy coats? I don't think they are not. They are not called petticoats. Are they called dusters? You know those like embroidered little girl coats? They're like chic child coats. You know what I'm talking about. But her transition to like tabloid star post her mom's death and how crazy it is that, you know, Whitney dies and immediately the media focuses all their attention on just hounding this child who just lost her mom. So after several decades of like, you know, marching Whitney to her own death, basically punishing her the entire way, all the way up until the end, they participated and added to the pressures that inevitably killed her daughter very, very soon after. Like it's just fucking wild. And I think for the most part, the sadness that is, you know, Bobby Christina's life is mostly ignored by the media. It sort of became old news when it wasn't worthy of like front page tabloid coverage anymore, which I guess in its own way is like a blessing in disguise because fuck those people. But also like, it's just gross, you know? And as you guys know, I'm currently covering being Bobby Brown on Patreon, patreon.com slash solid listen. We're doing episode by episode, Um, but this week we're going to be talking about, you know, the public perception of this train wreck reality television show and how it came to be, 
and you know where it sort of falls in the surreal life Anna Nicole Osborne's my life on the D list of it all in this last and final Whitney and Bobby episode we're going to be covering Whitney's last recording sessions her last album her last appearances her last stints in rehab um, those last performances where, you know, she was in such bad shape that she was notoriously booed, where audience members in Australia were very famously walking out of the performances in very large numbers. And, you know, it made headlines all over the world that Whitney Houston could officially no longer sing. Whitney Houston was at a point where she couldn't sing any better than your aunt, your uncle, like your friend from middle school who like did maybe a couple years of show choir, your morning bus driver. Whitney Houston was no longer the voice. It was officially done. There was no faking it. There was no covering it up with speak singing. She couldn't even speak sing anymore. There was no, you know, jumping around on stage and, and punching the air to distract us. It was bad. And she spent the last year of her life having the truest elephant man moment maybe ever having the entire world basically just throw rotten fruit at her until she died because people were angry and they felt betrayed by the fact that Whitney Houston had unapologetically ruined the voice the voice that meant so much to several generations of people the voice that people grew up with the voice that launched a thousand careers and, you know, used to make people cry was gone because Whitney Houston smoked it away. She could barely talk. It was just, it was a really, really, a really, really sad last year of, you know, last year of this woman's life who was a fucking living monument. We're also, of course, going to be covering the mysteriousness and the strangeness surrounding Whitney's death. There are so many unanswered questions and so many, like, head-scratching moments and so many poor decisions leading up to this very, like, avoidable tragedy. And the thing is, I feel like I should say this before we go super far into the episode. So... You know how I always make this joke that I've taken like a record number of notes. Like I, that's that's the minute it's a three four year long reoccurring joke. Like I'm always like you know doing more notes than I did the week before. I legitimately did so many notes this week that I'm actually kind of worried about how this episode will turn out because I don't want this. I don't want my episodes to be two hours long. I just don't. So what I'm thinking, and I'm thinking in my head right now that it'll probably be the smartest thing to do. I'm going to cover all the way up until Whitney Houston's death. And I had already planned on doing, like I said earlier, literally three minutes ago, a Bobby Christina episode on her own about her life with Nick Gordon and um, her going, you know, like all of the Dr. Phil stuff and all that shit. So I'm thinking I'll just, I'll talk about Whitney Houston's death with the death of her daughter next week is like a little, I don't even, that may, I don't, look. I don't know. I don't know how long that'll be either, but like, this is a lot. I'm trying to fucking navigate this. I'm in the home stretch and I keep making this harder for myself because I can't stop. I can't shut the fuck up. I've never needed to be told so badly by somebody to shut the fuck up. I need some, I need one of you to walk up to me during the recording of this episode and just 
Pinch my lips closed with your nails. Pinch my lips closed. Shut me up. I can't stop. But anyway, I'm thinking next week we'll do a little side episode to finish all of this off about Bobby Christina and we'll talk about Whitney Houston's death. Let me just start off by making the point that to say the 2000s were cruel to Whitney Houston would be the absolute understatement of the century. This is where you see Whitney doing things that are just unapologetically and very specifically for money. That it becomes really, it's like, it's, it's something that becomes really sad and hard to watch. Especially to have to watch a lot of it back to back is like really intense. And Whitney Houston got herself into a mountain of debt that she died in. Whitney Houston died in debt. She was never able to really crawl herself out of it. And, you know, she had spent the last 30 years living as this very wealthy, very depressed drug addict who had access to all of the things. And, you know, she and Bobby had now created a world for themselves that was just super dark and sad and abusive and oppressive. But she needed money. She needed to work. I.E. stands for important example. In 2003... Whitney released a Christmas album called One Wish as an attempt to kind of like rake in some cash. And luckily the album performed well, but during this time, like Whitney Houston still existed in this world where she honestly could have released an album of people like banging pots together and people would buy it. There was a demand for Whitney Houston. There was a demand to see if Whitney Houston could release a song or like a piece of work or do a performance or like an appearance and be the old Whitney Houston. The album wasn't reviewed, let's say, favorably, because as we've spoken about in the past, the music on it meant absolutely nothing to Whitney Houston. And she herself has confirmed this. She confirmed this later in life where she was like, I didn't give a fuck about any of that stuff I was doing. She didn't care. This was all just shit to do to get herself out of debt. This is Whitney Houston's version of working a nine to five. What I picture in my mind is that this was probably Whitney Houston being forced to wake up at like 2 p.m. and get into the studio after not leaving her like room or hotel or whatever for two or three weeks and zombie singing Christmas songs that she literally could not physically care any less about. If you've ever seen Deborah Wilson's iconic performance as Whitney Houston on Mad TV in the early 2000s, an actual masterclass at like comedic parody, like literally should be studied. One of her best sketches is Whitney screws up the classics. And I beg you to pause my voice and watch it on YouTube before I even finish this little side note that I'm doing. This Christmas album is where she drew that inspiration from. That sketch is this album. And, you know, the tone of that parody was sort of the thought process of the entire country that like Whitney Houston is high off her ass and in the studio, like recording Christmas music that she doesn't give a shit about because she's broke. We all knew why Whitney Houston was doing a random Christmas album in 2003 after all of the terrible media coverage she had gotten over the past couple of years. And it was not because of her love of old St. Nick. <laughs> oh God. 
The Guardian wrote a really interesting review of this album where they said, Soul Princesses and Christmas albums go together for some reason, just like P. Diddy and Mink Gators. And here two generations stick their tensely oar in. For Houston, especially, it's a chance to prove that she's still up to it. Straightforward renditions of 11 festive baubles, baubles, bubbles, um, how hard can it be? And that's the problem. Stuff like this is, is so piddling for her that she seems to have zoned out halfway through. Why put any elbow grease into the, quote, project when all she needs to do is set her larynx to, quote, reverent and then doze off? That being said, she does give Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas some acapella welly. And the cocktail doo-wop of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is quite irresistible. But still, this is the voice at its absolute numbest. So in December of 2003, Bobby was arrested and charged with battery after an altercation with Whitney where he threatened to, quote, beat her ass. CNN.com said Brown appeared with his lawyer before a judge Wednesday afternoon after meeting with detectives and a court solicitor. He was charged with one count of battery under Georgia's domestic violence law and released. He must return to North Fulton Magistrate Court to answer the court, answer the charge January 7th. According to Fulton County Police, a video from a local news station showed Houston and Brown at the court appearance. Houston with a visible bruise on her left cheek. The couple kissed and held each other as they entered the court building. We're still together, Houston told reporters as the couple left the courthouse with their arms linked. As they drove away, the song You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman blared on the stereo as Houston sang along and Brown kissed her bruised face. Eek. Uh, Nancy Seltzer, Houston's publicist, issued a statement Wednesday that she said came directly from a family spokesman. Brown, uh, Bobby Brown is very apologetic about what happened and hopes his wife will forgive him. Police were called to Brown and Houston's home at around 8.30 p.m. Sunday night. Upon arrival, officers spoke to Ms., uh, Mrs. Houston, who said Brown confronted her and stated he was going to beat her ass. Shortly after, Mr. Brown struck her with an open right hand. And Whitney actually talked about this with Oprah in 2009, and I have a lot of notes on her Oprah interview, so... um. I'm excited to get to that because it's interesting to hear, you know, divorced Whitney talk about these these situations that she was so closed off from. I have a lot of notes, actually, from the Oprah interview. Like, I basically transcribed the entire thing specifically because, you know, we we waited like 30 years to hear her be candid about her relationship with Bobby and not just sort of like blindly loyal to him. So it's interesting. I don't know if it's, you know, the last time you watched that interview, if you've never seen it, it is one of the greatest interviews in the history of entertainment. But we are about 40 minutes away from that. So let me shut the fuck up. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Also, I know that I've mentioned it in passing. We've talked about it kind of here and there for the past, like, few weeks. But I feel like it should be stated that on top of the fact that Whitney was high-key very broke, you know, Bobby is obviously not working, which is soon to change. We are about to talk about being Bobby Brown. But that's, you know, a couple years away. 
I do want to read this quote from the wealth advisor who wrote an article about Whitney Houston's fortune when she passed away. And uh, it says Whitney's lawsuit from her father dragged on well after his death um, before being dismissed in 2004, robbing Houston's lawyers of vital time to move the money into an asset protection trust. As long as the lawsuit was pending, those record company millions were simply too hot to hide. Any judge would have would have considered such a move a blatant attempt to defraud an existing creditor. And I just find that to be interesting. You know, she had this like $100 million lawsuit. And at the same time, she had a $100 million record deal. And it's just such like a, you know, I think people look at celebrities and are so confused by like products that they choose or things that they'll choose to do or like desperate attempts at making money because people don't understand that famous people can be poor. Like they can be rich, poor where they have a lot of money, but don't own any of it. Or, you know, they've had a lot of money at one time and have been able to afford a crazy lifestyle, but can no longer. You know, there's like so many different scenarios. If every celebrity who had money kept money, there would be no need for famous people to yacht. You know what I mean? Like, there are so many famous people who, like, come from famous families and and wealthy families and have a shit ton of money or whatever and still have to yacht because shit costs money (laughs) it's expensive to maintain the lifestyle of a wealthy person speaking of absurd financial debt and doing things that you don't want to do for money let's jump to september of 2004 it's announced that whitney houston is going to be making an appearance at the world music awards airing on abc and not only is she making a special appearance but she's also making a special announcement And I'm sure you can't imagine what it could possibly be. A statement from ABC was released where they said, for the first time in two years, Whitney Houston will perform on national television Wednesday, uh, September 15th at the World Music Awards 2004. Um, Houston's performance will honor legendary recording industry executive Clive Davis for his outstanding contribution to the music industry Houston's special performance will consist of a medley of I Believe in You and Me and I Will Always Love You. Clive Davis will receive the Outstanding Contribution to the Music Industry Award Wednesday night during the telecast. And it's so funny because it's like, I feel like we live in a time right now where with the visibility of celebrities and with celebrities being so accessible all the time, especially during COVID, it's like, the need for award shows sometimes just feels like it's they just feel so obsolete like they feel like such a thing of the past and you know having the entire country collectively like watch an award show together is still a thing but it's just so different than it used to be and you realize like sort of now that we're kind of removed from it like how much bullshit there is you know how much like fake put on pretend bullshit all of those ceremonies actually are and it's so funny like I just recently rewatched going clear and there's a part in that documentary where they talk about how you know the, the church will randomly give Tom Cruise awards just to stroke his ego and they make up these awards and 
they have fake names and it'll be called like the you know the outstanding medal of being an excellent human being and a perfect specimen award specifically for Tom Cruise and this is so very that like the outstanding contribution to the music industry award like okay so basically Clive Davis partnered with ABC they said look we'll give you an award if you can convince Whitney Houston to perform like this was obviously a mutual thing Clive obviously knew he was getting this award and they used this telecast <laughs> to uh convince people to invest in Whitney Houston again like the whole thing is just so transparent and stupid I will say that I think this appearance is special to Whitney Houston fans because you could say that it was her last like decent performance really like this may have been one of the last times we saw Whitney Houston on like a global stage sounding and looking even remotely similar to Whitney Houston the Whitney Houston that we grew up with but that being said it ain't great it's not a great performance you can still see that she's struggling to get through the song she's dancing around notes that she used to be able to hit you know there's an undeniable like smoker's rasp to her voice that's starting to you know stop her from doing things like riffing and doing all the things that she would normally do you can tell it's like it's her instinct to do these things and to sing a certain way but her body can't perform like it used to Whitney and Clive did an interview after the award ceremony to announce another album to Entertainment Tonight I bet you never ever could have possibly guessed that that would be the news that they would announce more music um and this was Clive's attempt at trying to rehab Whitney publicly, no pun intended. You know, after being released from treatment in March, this literally was, it's like she had rehabbed herself and now they wanted to rehab her career. And she had rehabbed herself in quotes. Like she went just to kind of say that she went. She went to shut people up. And she admits later during her Oprah interview that she was still using immediately after and like probably during. So it meant absolutely nothing, but, you know, they all collectively needed money bad. She told E.T., I'm more relaxed now. I'm an older girl now. To me, I never went anywhere. I decided to take time for me and live my life and raise my daughter. To my family, I've never gone anywhere and they hear me all the time. Uh, she said, we are going to make records again. It's like a new beginning, like a new plateau. Clive is like my dad in a lot of ways. I call him my industry father. He's guided me through my career and I'm going to make some noise. I think, she said, I just think about me being the best that I can be, and I can't live up to everybody's uh, expectations of me. And it's like, can you imagine how exhausting it is to have to have these empty conversations all the time where you speak in these, like, metaphorical, circular riddles all the time? I've talked about this in the past a lot when discussing Lindsay Lohan, because Lindsay is somebody who speaks in these mindless riddles that never mean anything. I'm more relaxed now. I'm staying grounded. I'm centered. I'm lighting my candles. Blah, blah, blah. I'm doing what I can to stay focused. I'm blocking out the negativity. I'm surrounding myself with positivity. Like, whatever all of that even means. Um, and one of the guys in the Hulu documentary said something that I found pretty pretty profound about the last years of her life in the public eye 
Because for a long time, she went full Shelley Duvall. And we're going to talk about that. Like, Whitney went full on Shelley Duvall and disappeared from the public. She was, like, never to be seen again for years. But in these last performative years of her life where she needed the money, so Clive was, you know, cattle prodding her out on stage, this guy said that she she had absolutely no vanity. She was just sort of existing. She didn't care. She was a zombie. She had no drive. She had no interest in singing. She didn't care about her voice. She didn't care really that she couldn't sing anymore. She didn't want to sing anymore. It was like one of the last things that she really wanted to do. She was over singing. That this thing that she loved so much that used to bring her all this joy was taken from her, basically. So she had no attachment anymore really to music, which is so, so sad. Whitney's drug counselor makes an appearance in Can I Be Me? And she talks about the fact that Whitney wanted really badly to be sober. She very desperately wanted to be normal. She wanted to go out and like, you know, shop with her kid and go to the grocery store and go lay at the beach and go sit at a patio at a restaurant and eat dinner. She really, really wanted out bad. She didn't give a shit about the money. She didn't give a shit about their homes and their cars and their clothes. She'd had all of that stuff for so long at that point. You know, she got married. She had a kid. She was wealthy. Like, she had all of the things that you're supposed to aspire to have, in quotes, you know, as an adult woman. But she was miserable and she didn't care about any of it. She told her counselor that she didn't want to go to, you know, some like celebrity treatment facility in Malibu on the beach by fucking Caitlyn Jenner's house. She wanted to be at home with her kid being looked after. And she would tell her counselor that she wanted to be a fully present mom because Whitney Houston knew. I think especially at this point in her life that her daughter deserved better than what she was giving her. She knew that Bobby Christina was neglected. She knew that Bobby Christina was inevitably going to go down a dark path because of what they had exposed her to. There was no saving her at this point. Her entire foundation, her upbringing since she was born has been fucking mania. And she was trying she was in a place of trying to right her wrongs. There's a lot of home footage in Can I Be Me and there's this really interesting scene where She's talking to Bobby at dinner and he mentions that he's, in quote, worried about Bobby Christina's double chin. Like, serious. Like, he's like dead serious. Like, we really need to do something about this. We need to get on it. She's getting fat. And I mean, it should come as no surprise to you if you've been listening to the Bobby Brown episodes. Like, Bobby, it's a reoccurring thing that Bobby mentions Bobby Christina's weight. And Whitney responds and says, don't talk about my daughter like that. And he, you know, gets that serious Bobby Brown look on his face that I talk about all the time where he's like, it's my daughter too. Like, watch your fucking tone. Don't backtalk me. And they have this back and forth that, you know, this is normal Whitney and Bobby. Like if you've, like, again, if you've been watching being Bobby Brown, like this is normal Whitney and Bobby. And it's crazy because I feel like the Bravo cameras were filming this at the same time as this home video footage. 
And to see how their interaction at dinner is edited for Bravo in comparison to this raw footage was shocking. It was fucking like bone chilling to me. Whitney starts crying and she says, quote, she's a celebrity's kid. So I worry about her. And she's like, why would you say something like that? Like, why would you say something like that to get me so upset? And she literally, like, within seconds has tears streaming down her face. And you get this, like, firsthand look at what Bobby Brown being verbally abusive all the time looks like to his wife. And, of course, he's, like, holding her hand and trying to make her feel better. But it's like... This is their dynamic. This is what he does all the time. And Bravo just edits this shit out. Or they add, like, silly, wacky music behind it. Her drug counselor also mentions that Bobby was only supportive of her getting sober for the first three months. Then, as soon as it started to kind of interfere with his life and his spending and, you know, him being able to do whatever he wanted, the counselor then became his enemy. So, you know, Whitney was becoming more and more independent. She was taking cars away and selling homes without permission. Um, She literally said, and I quote, I always have to be the ballerina on stage, taking care of everybody else. So when do I get to take care of me? And he would refer to this as her cleaning herself, which I thought was like actually really weird. Her cleaning. Um... And he told the drug counselor that he found it disturbing that she was helping Whitney get sober. Speaking of Bobby Brown, I am now in the thick of it when it comes to being Bobby Brown. And I have to tell you, my feelings on this show are more confusing now than they've ever been. Like, I'm always, I don't know. In the past, I always chalked this show up to being just like a trashy show like the rest of the world. This was a trashy reality show on Bravo. And it is. But it's also such a fascinating think piece if you have any interest in pop culture at all. Because it's funny, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's frustrating, it's gross, it's candid, it's raw, it's real, it's honest, it's really vulnerable. And it's entertaining as fuck without really doing much of anything. Being Bobby Brown is something that Whitney Houston obviously agreed to do for her husband because at the end of the day, they could both pretend not to know Bobby Brown's career was non-existent, but they both knew. They were both very aware of the fact that this was a big opportunity for Bobby, who at that point hadn't released music in years. Whitney was also doing this for him because she was trying to be a good wife and do something in support of her husband, who had been by her side throughout all of her triumphs, you know, for 20 fucking years, rooting against her nonetheless, but there by her side, standing on the side of the stage, like growling at her, basically. I have a bunch of feelings and things that I want to say about this television show, but I also found a Gawker article from 2012 during the anniversary of the show that does a much better job of uh, stating how I feel. It's really, really, really good. So I'm going to read it to you. It is long, but it's worth it. 
It says, in 2009, Oprah Winfrey asked Whitney Houston if the 2005 Bravo series Being Bobby Brown highlighted the dysfunction between her and her husband with whom she appeared alongside. Responded with a real honest, deep laugh, Whitney said, yeah, I do. I sure do. Yeah. Their 15-year marriage was one Whitney Houston had deemed emotionally abusive in the same interview. Moreover, she seemed to agree with Oprah when she brought up the unanimous critique that the show was a, quote, train wreck. Whitney said, yeah, it was crazy. It was madness. But above all this, Whitney could look back and laugh. Some things are just so true that they can't not be funny. When Whitney Houston died earlier this year, kicking up a good month's worth of discourse about her life, her career, her addiction, her cautionary tale, and how we treat our celebrity royalty in general, being Bobby Brown was something of a taboo topic. Out of respect for the dead, we were implicitly urged not to look back on what's considered her darkest public hour. As someone so sentimental about Whitney's death that I had two dreams after that fooled me into believing she was still alive and that this was all one big mistake, I don't think being Bobby Brown was her darkest hour. Seven years to the day after it debuted, it still plays remarkably well. It's funny and it's weird and disgusting and profanely honest because she admitted that she was using drugs during the filming and it shows. There are literally scenes that are just she and Bobby sitting around and being high. And because there were traces of cocaine in her system at the time of her particularly ghoulish death, it wouldn't be fair to interpret being Bobby Brown as a tangible sign of Houston's demise. Ironically, it found her more alive than ever. That's at least where we the people are concerned. We've never been allowed such an intimate view into the mundane side of an iconic celebrity's life. This was the daily grit like we'd never seen it before. As far as I know, no superstar diva had ever let a public record had ever left a public record of her farting before being Bobby Brown, and I haven't seen any since. The Whitney of being Bobby Brown is fidgety and difficult, prone to head coverings and early departures. She's a pop music enthusiast who bursts into song, loves her husband, loves her daughter, loves to laugh, and says goofy shit. She breaks the fourth wall immediately. The first time we see Whitney, about seven minutes into the first episode, she acknowledges the camera and pulls away her husband that she hasn't seen in over a month to have sex with him in a bedroom. She only later realizes that she hasn't seen her daughter, Bobby Christina. He had just gotten out of jail and was facing charges for domestic abuse. In the second episode, Whitney, the potential star witness for the prosecution, attends his hearing by his side. The self-entitlement of the Browns is palpable. They're rarely dressed up on being Bobby Brown because they don't have to be. They don't do very much to, in quotes, make the show either. This was before screaming and table flipping were the norm on reality TV. The biggest outward signs of drama that we're treated to are bickering and whining. The show itself is oddly matter of fact. Episodes generally have a loose organizing structure, things like camping, London, Mother's Day, Bobby's music recording, but there's no discernible fake setups, a hallmark of candid reality TV. Mostly, they just sit around, eat, and go shopping. As public behavior for two titans of pop culture, being Bobby Brown counts as phoning it in. But it works because they are inherently fascinating people. At one point on a red carpet, Bobby refers to them as America's entertainers to a journalist. This is all the MO they need. Being Bobby Brown is an inherent meditation on fame and attention because reality TV is often where careers go to die. And that was especially true in 2005. This is when it was all stigmatized as the last resort circuit. Bobby's career had virtually evaporated at that point. He hadn't released an album since 1997's Forever and hadn't had a top 40 hit since 1992's Get Away. He still hasn't, in fact. 
Whitney Houston, on the other hand, was still Whitney Houston, and though 2002's Just Whitney was a big flop, her early triumphs were so immense that she was guaranteed a spot on the A-list for life. She was the focal point of being Bobby Brown, and she didn't even need her name in the title to draw a crowd. She was so important to the series that her refusal to participate in a uh, partially filmed second season is believed to be the reason that it never aired. More than once, a scene's punchline involves Bobby falling... Uh, failing to be recognized, requiring the explanation that he's Whitney Houston's husband. This happens in front of the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Elsewhere, Bobby swings back and forth from humility to egotism. Despite his inertia, he talks about how no one in the R&B game at the time could match him. Together, he and Whitney share a very complicated loving and loathing of fame. They were resting on it by just padding out in some sweatpants and sitting down in front of a camera to, quote, make a show, but they also rant about it. There are several scenes in which Whitney reacts to public admirers with hostility. As she's attempting to eat in an outside area and is ogled, she screams, Ma'am, please be me for a minute. And yet there are gentler interactions, like one at a Von Dutch store in Los Angeles where she sings a bit of I'm Every Woman, is thanked by the employees and says, You're welcome. She ends up dancing with a young man named Andre J., who would, in a few years, turn up on the cover of French Vogue after she finds out that he's from her hometown of Newark. As much as Whitney and Bobby seemed to deplore the hassle their status brought, they were never afraid to use it when convenient. When asked by an interviewer if the show that they were filming would compare to the then-airing Jessica Simpson, Nick Lachey MTV reality show Newlyweds, Whitney, this is amazing, Whitney scrunches up her nose, they're cute, but we're Whitney and Bobby, she says dismissively. I just want to be a real person, Whitney whines at one point in the premiere when she's surrounded by people holding thin novel camera phones. And for better and certain worse, she got her wish for, with being Bobby Brown. There is nothing that you can point out on that show that appears to be fabricated. Even Bobby's narration is understated and clipped together as to mediate on what we just saw instead of setting up any sort of action. Being Bobby Brown has a somewhat undeserved reputation for being a low point in reality TV. It's too trashy, it's too sad, it's too full of dysfunction. But that is its genius. These people set out to do a reality show, and oh boy, did they deliver the most uniformly real picture of celebrity downtime and codependency that reality TV has literally ever seen. Being Bobby Brown represents an ideal that we imply we're looking for every time we bitch about something on reality TV that is, in quotes, obviously fake, but also that it turns out that we don't actually want to see. Of her relationship with Bobby Brown, Whitney Houston told Oprah in the above-referenced interview, we fought hard, we loved hard, and it was hard to watch. The truth hurts, but there's hilarity in the truth, and in between, the two axioms was being Bobby Brown. And I guess the thing that I find really interesting is that being Bobby Brown gave the world permission to laugh at Whitney Houston. It's one thing to make fun of somebody during like a Dateline interview because it just so happens to be, you know, quotable. You know, they're in a, a dark place, but they're also funny and you can like make light of it or whatever. It's a completely different situation to do a reality show where you make yourself look terrible in front of wacky music and jump cuts, especially in 2005, Whitney was the truest definition of what it meant to be the 2005 version of like a walking meme. Whitney had turned herself into a meme, a walking, breathing, living, real life internet meme. And 
Whitney Houston, one of the greatest singers of all time, a, a living monument, had aligned herself with Anna Nicole Smith. And now there's a whole, you know, maybe five or six years worth of articles that are written about Whitney Houston with Anna Nicole Smith in them because they are compared for doing a similar kind of show that was, in quotes, trashy. And you know how I feel about Anna Nicole. She is the fucking heart of my spirit, whatever. But like, there's no world in which Anna Nicole Smith should be compared to Whitney Houston. And as mentioned in that (laughs) that Gargle article, the show was never picked up for a second season because Whitney didn't agree to be a part of it after the negative publicity that she got from it. Um, Even on a television show with his name on the title, he still played a supporting character in his own life. And Bravo agreed to never release the footage of this show on DVD, hoping that it would never see the light of day. If you Wikipedia being Bobby Brown, it literally says in the description that Bravo hoped that it would be buried and lost and never seen again because they took part in dismantling Whitney Houston's fucking career. And obviously it's not Bravo's fault that people were like talking poorly about Whitney Houston at this time. But like, my God, you, you aired Whitney Houston on like a slapstick reality show. But again, that's why I love that article so much because I am really enjoying watching, watching being Bobby Brown. And I'm not only enjoying it because I think it's funny or like to make fun of it. It really is extremely fascinating. It's probably one of the most fascinating reality shows I think I've ever seen. It's got to be now in my top five. I'm three episodes in and and it's really worked itself up into like shows that I'll never forget watching. And I've obviously, of course, I've seen it before, but I was a kid when I watched Being Bobby Brown in completion and watching it right now while doing this. I don't know if it's just because I'm high off the Whitney Houston brand, but like I'm living. By this point in their marriage, Whitney and Bobby had drifted apart to the point that he actually was in another relationship. He was in another committed relationship. He was openly dating another woman while still married to her. And the other day, Liz Bentley, you're going to like this. I was recommended a Corinne Stephens interview on YouTube, aka Superhead. If you haven't listened to my Superhead episode with Liz Bentley. It's like one of the most downloaded episodes of this podcast. You should definitely listen to it. It's really good. Liz and I both literally read Corinne Stephan's book for the episode and went through all of her hookups. Like she, if you don't know who Corinne Stephan's is, like at this point, I don't know what the hell you're doing here, but I'm going to need for you to Google it. Look it up. Um, But anyway, I don't know if Corinne Stephens was the woman. I don't know if she was the woman, but she was definitely one of the women. And uh, Bobby was basically living in her house during the time. He had no money. He had no car. And because everything he owned belonged to Whitney, he had nothing. So he was he was being supported by Corinne Stephens. She was feeding him. She was buying him clothes. She had to like restock his wardrobe because at a certain point he like wasn't going home to get his stuff. So she bought him a bunch of clothes so that he would have stuff 
to keep at her house. Like it was really, really, really dark. Corinne mentions having to call the house when Whitney was home sometimes and she would have to ask for Bobby. And like Whitney was super chill. She knew that Bobby was like dating other women and she was like, oh, hey, sweetie, how are you? How's the weather out there in L.A.? Oh, it's still, you know, it's raining here. It never stops raining in, in Atlanta. Like, like small talking with fucking Superhead. And, and, and like screaming, Bobby, it's, it's Corinne Stefan. Superhead is on the phone with you. Like you're Guma. <laughs> and according to Corinne, one of the last nights that she spoke to Bobby Brown, he was at her house and he, I guess Mike Tyson had called and was like, hey, Bobby, like, I want to go out with you. So I really want you to leave and come party with me in whatever fucking state I'm in or whatever. So, and and by the way, Corinne Steffens had also fucked Mike Tyson. So she he was like, hey, Corinne, like, what's up? I know that Bobby's staying there and you're fucking him right now. Like, I really want him to come to like, I think they were going to Vegas. So Bobby leaves, he goes to Vegas with Mike. And earlier that day, she had gotten into this big fight with him because he told her that she had never done anything for him and that he didn't need her because, you know, Bobby is an egotistical maniac. And he was embarrassed by the fact that this woman was taking care of him because he didn't have shit. So he threw it in her face and said, like, I don't need you. You've never done anything for me, blah, blah, blah. So he leaves. He goes and parties with Mike Tyson and if you read Bobby Brown's book or know anything about Bobby Brown and Mike Tyson's relationship, they were like true, like hellions together. Um, there's a story in Bobby's book about a night where he and Mike Tyson went on this like 24 hour drug binge and had like a Coke orgy with a bunch of like sex workers in like Las Vegas or something. Like they've had some crazy nights together. So Bobby shows back up at Corinne's house beats on the door according to her he smelled like shit he smelled like alcohol he was like so fucked up that he couldn't walk and she takes him in and like lays him on the couch and takes care of him and feeds him and um I'm pretty sure she like kicked him out and and they never they never really spoke again but how fucking crazy is that and that leads us to October of 2006 it was announced that Whitney Houston had filed for divorce from Bobby Brown. Um, It was announced that she filed divorce papers in Orange County Superior Court a month after filing for legal separation. Whitney asked for full custody of a then 13-year-old Chrissy. And AP News said, the couple did separate for a time a few years ago, but their marriage endured despite rumors of speculation. Their life was put on display last year with Brown's reality TV series being Bobby Brown on Bravo. The show actually made Brown look like a, uh, a stable influence while a jittery Whitney Houston was on display. The couple often crudely talked about their marriage and love life. But earlier this year, the speculation of a possible split intensified. Brown's sister made headlines when she alleged in a National Enquirer interview that Houston was addicted to crack. She also supplied photos of what she said was Houston's bathroom littered with garbage and evidence of drug use. Phaedra Parks, an an entertainment lawyer in Atlanta who represents Brown, said uh, he told her Wednesday that Houston recently filed paperwork in California seeking a separation. She said, 
It is a legal separation. It is not a divorce. A divorce is a petition, Phaedra Park said. <laughs> Park said, I love it. Park said that she has not seen the documents and didn't know uh, which court they were filed in. When asked about speaking with Bobby, Phaedra said, Bobby's not speaking to anyone at this time. Whitney also started using drugs again, like a fucking mad woman during this time. This is when she quite possibly leaned into her addiction the hardest that she had ever done it because she had nothing to lose. She had nothing to live for. Her life was in the lowest slope that it had ever been. And now we're going to talk about the final years of Whitney Houston's life. And the interesting thing about Whitney Houston's post-divorce life is that, as I mentioned earlier, she did sort of go into this, like, Shelley Duvall, like, reclusive, living in, like, a possibly garbage-filled home. And she gave her first interview in 2009 to Oprah, as I mentioned earlier. But at that point, you know, it was her first major interview in, like, seven years. So... This was described as the most anticipated music interview of the entire decade. Some people said of all time, like this was a big deal to finally, after like 40 years, get Whitney Houston to sit down and have a candid, open, honest conversation about her relationship, about her drug use, about all, about her voice, about all the fucking things. And of course, since I'm on the autism spectrum, I did find the transcripts of this interview and I wrote them down, not all of it, but most of it. So I literally transcribed this interview and my notes like a fucking psychopath. Oprah says, there's a wonderful quote by the LA Times that said, the pain and frankly disgust that so many pop fans felt during Houston's decline was caused not so much by her personal distress as by her seemingly careless treatment of the national treasure that just so happened to reside within her. You were not like any of the others. You really were given the voice. You were given that treasure. And people felt, how could you not know that it was to be treasured? Whitney said, I knew in the days when I was a teenager singing for God, I was so sure. When I became, in quotes, Whitney Houston and all this other stuff that happened, my life became the world's, my privacy, my business, who I was with, who I was married to. And I was like, that's not fair. I wanted to go to the park. I wanted to walk down the street with my husband and hold his hand without somebody looking at us or having the media always in my business. I just wanted to be normal. Oprah said, it's so interesting that you say that that you say that because for years I've always thought that in many ways the Whitney Houston that we have seen has been a creation of the media. That obviously your voice and your talent is what it is, but the gowns and the hair, the first video and all that stuff was a creation. And then you were expected to be that all the time. And Whitney said, yeah, it was too much, too much to try and live up to, too much to try and be, you know, I wanted to be out at some point. So then Oprah goes on to ask Whitney if Bobby was her escape. Literally all of the stuff that we've talked about. So I feel very validated. Um, Whitney said, the princess marries the bad boy. It wasn't, she said, it really wasn't. She said, I was at the Soul Train Awards and he came on stage singing my prerogative and he was fly. He had moves. Bobby was like, hey, check this out. I want to ask you something, you know, if I was to ask you to go out with me, would you say yeah? And I said, yeah, I would. I certainly would. And then from that moment on, we clicked and we were friends. Three years went out. Three years we went out before we got married. 
uh, three years we dated, jet set it all over the world, doing whatever we wanted to do. They don't have any idea about that sweet, gentle tenderness about him that nobody knew. He was a very quiet person. And when that entertainer came out on stage, he did that thing. But at home, he was very much the father. He was very much the man. He was very much in control. I liked that because I was in control of all my stuff. And then here he comes along with, and everybody was like, wow, she's got somebody now. And when he said something, I listened to him. I was very, it was, I was very interested in having someone have that control over me. It was refreshing. That is something that we have not talked about. Because I just didn't put that together. It's like, duh, like, of course. Whitney Houston was like, as we talked about last week, she was a massive ecosystem, basically. She was a, a financial ecosystem. So obviously in her relationship, she wants to be as submissive as possible. Oprah then asked her when it all started to go wrong. And Whitney said, after the bodyguard, 1993, 1994, 1995, were filled with the bodyguard years. That album lasted me a long time. It went for a really long ways. I was in a whirlwind by that point. And um, she said, I was going everywhere. That record was so huge. And then I had my baby. I had my baby in my hands. And I had the man of my the man of my life that I loved so very much, who I was crazy for. And he had just put everything down and said, I'll go with you. Don't worry about it. Go do your thing. I think somewhere inside something happens to a man when a woman has that much control or has that much fame and he doesn't have anything of his own. Whitney also admits to Bobby being jealous of her for the first time. She finally fucking admitted the thing everybody had been saying about their relationship since 1992. And we are in 2009. It took her this long to publicly backtalk her husband. That's how in love with him and submissive she was. She said, I tried to play house and down and play it down all the time. I'm Mrs. Brown, everybody. Please don't call me Mrs. Houston. Oprah then goes on to ask if she still um, worries about pleasing Bobby at all, to which Brittany said, no, not at all. She said, um, there's things I could say, but I won't. Trust me, there are some things I could really say that he would really be mad about. But no, not at all. He never liked the fact that people would say, you're jealous of her. You're jealous of her fame. You're jealous of her fortune. And you're jealous of what she has. Um, that would get him really pissed off. Oprah asks her about being Bobby Brown. And if that was, you know, the reason that she did the show. And, you know, she also asks her if Whitney knew what she was getting herself into when she signed the contract to be a part of that show. And she said, I just wanted people to know that I was his wife. I wanted, she said, uh, I knew when I signed my prenuptial agreement, though, I knew what that was going to be. <laughs> but however, no, I did not know what I was signing up for. I was in love. I was crazy in love. And it didn't matter to me. And there's like, I just have to say that the thing that I think is so great about being Bobby Brown is that Whitney Houston so badly does not give a fuck about being on it. Like to her. This is just a guy with a camera following her around, which has been her life forever. She's just existing. Like, she's got her shake-and-go wig on, she's got her visor on, and she's at, you know, Nordstrom picking out jeans with her daughter. Like, she doesn't give a fuck that she's on a Bravo show. I don't even know if Whitney knew that this would actually go out into the world. I really seriously don't even know if she read these contracts or, like, what it was. Like, she's just 
living her life and existing and not worrying about making good TV. But because she's so fucking interesting and fascinating, she was making iconic television. So then we get into the good stuff. So Oprah says, when did the drug start? And Whitney says, before the bodyguard, it was very light. After the bodyguard, I had Chrissy. It started to get heavy. She says, what was your drug of choice? Whitney said, cocaine and marijuana. That's it. But he liked to drink. I wasn't a drinker. The alcoholism, that's an ugly thing. Either you're going to be a really nice alcoholic or a really mean one. And he was very mean. So Oprah asks Whitney if Bobby ever hit her. And she sort of lies. You know, she tells Oprah that she, um, that he had slapped her by accident once. Um, and then she hit him back and that, you know, he knew better than to hit her because of her brothers. And, um, she said, I just remember this moment, it was his birthday and I gave him a party at a nightclub in Atlanta. If you've never seen this interview, this is one of the most heartbreaking things I've literally ever seen. I gave him a, a party at a nightclub in Atlanta um, he drank a lot that night. He drank a lot. And for some reason, everything I did to try and make him happy, it would turn on me. It was so weird. Today, I understand it because people that alcoholics love, they try to abuse. So when we got back to the house, he's going to hate that I say this, but he spit on me. And my daughter was coming down the stairs and she saw it. That was pretty intense because I didn't grow up like that. I didn't understand why that occurred. But he had such a hate in his eyes for me. He cursed me all the way home in front of his parents. And then he spit on me. She said, I asked my friend to come get me. And Bobby pushed me against the wall. I was on the phone. I went back in. I went back in and I took the phone and I hit him over the head with it. He just fell out on the floor. It was just a lot of drama. My daughter came downstairs and she's like, daddy, mom, what did you do? I said, I told him not to do it. I kept saying, I told him not to do this. I told him not to do this. It was just one of those moments that got really hateful and really ugly. So then Whitney mentions the drug use and how it became an everyday thing because she had done the bodyguard waiting to exhale and the preacher's wife back to back, as we've talked about. And, um, you know, she also says that she knew the divorce was coming because Bobby had become so messy with his cheating you know, she started taking things out of their house little by little to the point that, you know, she had actually asked him to leave and he refused and slapped her. And that was the moment that she mentioned, you know, he in quotes slapped her by accident where, I mean, that's the being Bobby Brown moment where he goes to court. Like he in quotes accidentally slapped her. So then Oprah says, tell me how bad did it really get the drugs? And Whitney says, when you don't speak and you live in the same home and you're sitting right next to that person and you're not saying a word for over a week, you're just sitting there and you're just watching TV, that's really bad. And then Oprah said, you're just watching TV and doing coke or are you smoking? And she said, we were, she said, we were lacing our marijuana with base. We weren't on crack. We were, we, she said, we were never on any crack stuff. We weren't buying $20 jumbos. We were paying real money. We were buying kilos and ounces and ounces. Uh, we would have our stash. And then Oprah said, but were you freebasing cocaine? Whitney says, basically, we weren't doing pipe smoking. We didn't get that far. She said, I remember saying to God one day, I said, God, give me one day of strength because I am so weak. I'm so weak to Bobby. I'm so weak to love. And I was like, this is love? What is this? What am I into? 
And then Oprah asks her if she was weak to Bobby or if she was just addicted to drugs. Like, were they trauma bonded together or was she actually in love? Was like the question everybody wants to know. Did you really fucking love this man? And she says, Bobby was my drug. I didn't do anything without him. I wasn't getting high by myself. Uh, it was me and him together always. You know, we were partners and that's what my high was. It was him. He and I being together and whatever we did, we did it together. No matter what, we did it together. There were times when he would smash things. He would break things in the home, glasses, vases. We had a big giant, we had a big, big giant portrait of me, him and my child. He cut my head off of the picture, stuff like that. And I thought, this is really strange. So I figured cutting my head off of a picture, that was a little much for me. That was a sign. And then there were other things like he started to paint my bedroom eyes. And then there were other things like he started to paint in my bedroom, just eyes, eyes everywhere, evil eyes that were looking at every point of the room. Yeah, the rug, the walls, the closet doors. If I opened my door, there would be one picture, then I'd close them and there'd be another picture and eyes and faces. It was really strange. And in the end of the interview, Whitney admits to her most recent rehab stint. She says that she completed 30 days and tells the story of Sissy Houston showing up at her house. This is actually amazing. She said, I got out of the program and it continued. The drugs didn't stop. So one day my mother came to the house and it's kind of funny. But now looking back, I see the love and the, and the passion that my mother had for me um, and that she still has for me. She walks in with the sheriff and she says, I have a court injunction here. You do it my way or we're not going to do it at all. You're going to go on TV. You're going to retire and say you're going to give this up because it's not worth it. She said, if you move, Bobby, the sheriff, he will take you down. Don't you make a move. And he stood there like he was really scared. <laughs> she said, let's go. Let's do this. I'm not losing you to, the, to this world. I'm not losing you to Satan. I'm not doing this. I want my daughter back. I want you back. I want to see the glow in your eyes again, the light in your eyes. I want to see that child that I raised. You weren't raised like this and I'm not having it. So you make a choice. You make it here today because I have a court injunction that says you have to go. And it's ironic that she says you weren't raised like this because it's like, no, actually, sissy, she was very much so raised like that. She'd been doing, she'd been freebasing coke since she was a fucking teenager. So we're going to end this episode by talking about Whitney's abysmal comeback this really really sad you know embarrassing comeback where like she should just not have been on stage it was rumored in 2007 that Whitney was making a comeback but this comeback would be different than the other ones because she at this point had had like four different comebacks in the past few years this was Whitney Houston post-divorce as a single mom you know allegedly sober ready to reclaim her throne it was brandable you know and her last album, I Look To You, was released on July 14th of 2009. Whitney went on her first traditional press tour in years, starting with Good Morning America. And her Good Morning America performance has to be one of the most startling moments for me in like pop culture history. And I, I know this is going to sound really dramatic, but it's like it's almost more startling than the Michael Jackson's 30th anniversary thing. And it's like, as I've mentioned several times, like rail thin, want to be starting something Whitney, you know, she could at least fake it. She was near death and it was bone chilling, but she was still sort of 
she still sounded kind of like Whitney Houston, just like scream talk singing. But by 2009, Whitney Houston was 100% unrecognizable. She is a stranger. This is femme fatale Britney era of Whitney Houston. Like she is just not, I don't know who she is. To say that her voice was gone would be the absolute understatement of the century. I actually don't even know how to describe what her voice sounded like. And it must have been really weird for Oprah to sit down and have that interview with her and ask her, like, why she damaged her voice when she has a comeback album coming out where she's, like, going on a tour. And it's like, well, you can't sing. And you're admitting to not being able to sing anymore, but also we're really excited about your new album. She went on this UK tour and ended up canceling a bunch of the first few shows because of an alleged respiratory infection. And, you know, when she finally did perform, she was reviewed so poorly that at that point, I think the smarter thing would have been to just pull the plug on this whole thing. But now it was like so cemented that Whitney's reputation was that she couldn't do it. And it was like she had to do it this time. You know, like Clive couldn't. None of them could afford for her to not do it this time. The Guardian reviewed her performances and said, Disappointed and disgraceful were perhaps some of the gentler terms used by concert goers in Brisbane to describe a recent show by the legendary and often highly acclaimed singer Whitney Houston. It's the worst concert I've ever been to in my entire life, said the audience member, while standing in the parking lot of the Australian Arena during Australia Arena during Houston's set. In fact, some viewers were so displeased by what they saw and did not even stay for the entire show. Many left midway through the concert and expressed their severe dissatisfaction with the pop diva, who regardless still stands as one of the highest selling recording artists of all time. Definitely not worth the $165 for a ticket, one fan lamented. Another fan in the arena parking lot was even harsher towards Houston's, uh, Houston's singing skills and overall ability to keep the audience engaged flatly stating Whitney Houston couldn't entertain a dead rat to be honest and that's I mean that's not to say that her final album didn't do well it did it sold well the singles performed pretty well they got good radio play million dollar bill was remixed and became like a a a dance song that charted on the dance chart and people liked the album it's just weird to listen to because you can you can hear all of these auto-tune voice effects put on Whitney Houston because she can't sing. And in May of 2011, it was announced that Whitney Houston was entering outpatient rehab again. Apparently, she had voluntary, voluntarily entered herself into the program. Now, we do obviously have to talk about Whitney Houston's death. And of course, as I said, again, I think I'm just going to do that with Bobby Christina. I'm going to cover Whitney's death next week. And we're going to talk about Bobby Christina and Nick Gordon, which I am not looking forward to. But I am excited to kind of put a bow on this and end it. You know, it feels like it's time. It's just like never ending sadness. And I'm excited to get back into doing some fun, random things. I think for the next few weeks after we're done with Whitney and Bobby, I just want to do fun things. I want to do some old album revisits again. Um, Just fun stuff. I don't know. Um, I am in desperate need to get off this microphone. I cannot express to you how badly I don't want to talk anymore. My, if you can't tell my voice is literally, I sound like what I'm describing in Whitney Houston, which is hilarious. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. 
Um, now would be a better time than ever for you to subscribe to Patreon and listen to these Bobby Brown episodes that I've been talking about endlessly. Patreon.com slash solid listen. Um, it is at the $5 level. I've gotten a lot of emails from people being like, where is it? It's at the $5 bonus level. And, uh, yeah, I need to stop talking. I love you guys so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.